0: We're looking at Exodus chapter 4, continuing on in our study verse by verse, chapter by chapter of this great story of God's redemption, the cross work of Christ in the Old Testament, anticipated the anticipation of Christ in the Old Testament. And we come this morning to a very strange story. I'll just prepare you for that. I tried to prepare you for it last week as we were getting ready for a A uh, a baptism, an infant baptism, and this is a story about circumcision. And we know that circumcision and baptism represent the same things in Scripture. God replaced circumcision with baptism. And it's a strange story, but I think if we walk through it carefully, we understand a couple of things. We understand not only how God is anticipating the work of Christ for His people here, but we're also going to understand a bit more of what it's like to study narrative in the Old Testament. You know, they, these, these Old Testament stories are written very skillfully by artists. And uh, artistically, Moses is putting this story together in such a way that we see the point as we look at the whole pattern of the story. What, why does this come after that? What word is repeated? What is the image? How does this connect with other things in the, in the Bible? And uh, I'm interpreting as best I can after exegeting this text. I'm interpreting and applying, and I may not always get the interpretation exactly right, but I can pledge to you this, that even if I miss the particular interpretation, uh, that truth is going to be found somewhere else in Scripture. I'm not going to invent something brand new and novel from, uh, from a narrative portion of Scripture. So we are putting our ear to these pages, listening for the approaching footsteps of Jesus as he makes his way to the cross, as he wins our salvation and continues to apply it to us. So with hearts and minds eager to encounter the gospel here in this passage, look with me at Exodus chapter 4. Exodus is the second book of the Bible. We begin reading in verse 18, go through about 28 or so. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. The Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt, and Moses took the staff of God in his hand. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, would you open our eyes to see, to remember all that you have done for us in Jesus Christ. And may we not presume on that grace, but cling to that preservation that is made for us that will keep us into all of eternity. And for that one who has yet to bow the knee to Christ, would you use this passage, this story to remind them of how good you are and yet how ultimate is their end should they continue to reject the free offer of your Son fall upon us mightily, we pray, Holy Spirit, we pray it in Jesus' name. God's people said together, amen. A few years ago, I was in an airport and had a long layover, and I had not brought a book with me, which is a moment of panic. So I went into the bookshop, and I saw a title there that caught my eye, Brain on Fire. I read it in the book in the airport that day it was uh, it was a story of Sus- Susana Kahalen who uh, was a brand new reporter at the New York Post her her career was taking off and and she was 6 months into a romantic relationship the first in her life everything was going perfectly she couldn't have been happier and then suddenly she became very delusional. She was disconnected with life. She became more and more agitated, more and more paranoid. Uh, More and more severe psychosis uh, came on her until, because of her violence, she was put into a hospital and restrained and put into kind of quarantine. The family spent a million dollars on blood tests and other diagnoses to try to find, desperately trying to find what was wrong with her. Uh, all of her characteristics, all of the symptoms seemed to resemble what uh, people in, in uh, days long ago described as demonic possession. Some of the people who had these same kinds of things were labeled as demon-possessed in other parts of the world. Just before she was going to be committed to a psychiatric hospital for the rest of her life, a doctor a new doctor on staff of the hospital volunteered to take her case his name was dr suhel nahar he had been doing some research on on brain a new a newer brain disease a newer uh, a newer exploration into these kinds of symptoms and uh, he sat down with her and he, he, he listened very carefully, he took three pages of notes and then asked her to look at the clock on the back of the wall and to draw a picture of it. And when she drew all of the numbers entirely on the right side of the page, he was fairly certain that she had anti-NMDA encephalitis, this disease that he had and other colleagues had begun recently to diagnose, and he had been experimenting with a treatment that seemed successful. He did not put her in the psychiatric hospital. He insisted on treating her, and after some months, even a year of therapy, she was restored. I heard her later give a TED Talk the end of her TED Talk, describing uh, all this, uh, this, this terrible situation she was in, this horrific possibility of being committed to a psychiatric hospital, she described Dr. Nahar's voluntary taking on of her case, his, his research, the, 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 the medications that he used, and, and uh, the, the test, and then her healing. She said, I am... Lucky. It was luck that saved me. And I want others to be as lucky as I am. Now, we can't judge an unbeliever, someone with an unregenerate mind. We can't judge them in self-righteousness saying, what is wrong with them? Because we would not think any differently ourselves had Christ not taken over our minds and begun to renew our minds and set us free from conformity to this world. The point is not to judge Susanna Cahalan, but rather to, to illustrate the way we often act the kind of practical atheism we often engage in, the kind of presumption we can make on God's grace. And that's what I think is being illustrated in the life of Moses, that Moses was presuming upon God's grace, and, and God had taught him that he must turn from that presumption and instead embrace the preservation that is given to him freely through Christ who was anticipated in the angel of the Lord who intercepted his way. The same is true for us. We must turn from that presumption upon grace and embrace the grace of Jesus Christ received by faith alone, not earned by works, not contributed to by our own perfectionism. Let me show you how I got to that point by unpacking the narrative for us, beginning in verses, verse 18. Let's walk through it. Moses, first of all, the first thing we encounter is Moses going back to his father-in-law and, and asking for his blessing to return to Egypt, but then we're immediately struck, aren't we, that Moses lies about his reason for going. We've been living with Moses at the burning bush for this uh, last couple of chapters, and God makes it very clear why He wants Moses to go back. His people have been under tyrannical bondage in Egypt they have been mistreated and and treated as animals their 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 children have been slaughtered and and killed by Pharaoh and God says to Moses I want you to go to Egypt that place from which you fled because you murdered a man I want you to go back I want you to go back to the most powerful man in the world and I want you to tell him those are my people And I've heard their cry from heaven, and I want you to command him to let my people go. Well, Moses Moses resists that. Moses has all kinds of excuses. And finally, Moses says, send somebody else. And then we're told, Moses does. Remember, Moses is writing the story. Moses tells us that God is indignant with him. And yet the only way that we know that God was indignant with him is because Moses told us. Because we wouldn't necessarily pick that up from what God says. He he just tells Moses that he's going to give him Aaron to help him. So Moses goes to Jethro. Why doesn't he tell him? Why doesn't he tell him? God is sending me back to let my people go. Some people say it's because Jethro couldn't have handled it. He He couldn't have understood it. He's, he's, a, he's a Midianite, he's, he's, away from, he's away from the Israelites, he, he wouldn't have had all the same revelation. And so Moses thinks, I can't, I can't bring him up to speed with what all that I've learned in the burning bush, and I'm just going to tell him I'm going to go back and see my people. He could understand that. The problem with that is by chapter 18, Jethro demonstrates some fairly sophisticated theological insight. It doesn't seem to fit, that theory doesn't seem to fit. Maybe that uh, some think that, that uh, Jethro would not have let him go. He's afraid that he wouldn't let him go because he would say, you're not going to take my daughter into that kind of dangerous situation. You, you, and, and plus, I'm not going to let you go. You're a valuable employee. You're the only shepherd I have. But um, Jethro would have known that this was this was dangerous. He doesn't say anything about him not going back because of danger. It seems to me, rather, that what... Moses is demonstrating is his lack of faith. He's just looked at God in the burning bush and God has said, I will be with you. But Moses is still trusting in himself. Moses is still saying, you know, I've got to get myself... Now, he's. I've got to get that blessing. That patriarchal blessing was significant in those days. uh, People didn't just pass around, God bless you, like like we do when someone sneezes. They they, they only, when they said, God bless you, they meant it. And when they conveyed their blessing, they meant it. And Moses thought, I need that blessing, but I've got to get it by my own machinations. I've got to be clever enough to get it out of my father-in-law, and I can do it. It's up to me. Moses is pretty confident in his heart. He's so confident in his heart he can tell God, you need to get somebody else. And now he's confident enough he can lie to his father-in-law in in the presence of God in order to get what he wanted. And that helps make sense of the next verses, verses 21 and following, when when God says to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. It immediately strikes us as, as, as we might say, unfair. The this, this, this sovereign God will not give Pharaoh an opportunity to repent, but instead is going to harden his heart? But you need to remember that as many times as the Bible says God will harden Pharaoh's heart, the Bible also says Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Now, which is it? Well, it's both, and you need a biblical mind to embrace both at the same time. There are people on equal extremes of this idea. Does uh, does God save us entirely without any participation? Or does God wait to save us until we are wise enough and strong enough to choose Him on our own volition? Those are extremes. And those people who live in those extremes only look at half of the Bible... They take their favorite verses and they cling to those. Well, we don't have that privilege. We have to embrace the whole of the Bible. We're not hyper-Calvinists and we're not Pelagians. We are Biblicists, which means we look at the Bible and we say, what does it say? It says God hardened his heart and it says Pharaoh hardened his heart. And every week I say, you must believe in the Lord Jesus And you will be saved. And then when you are saved, I say, you never would have believed in the Lord Jesus had he not enabled you to believe. That's the best we can do. God is sovereign. We have responsibility. And how those two meet, I can't tell you because my brain is finite as is yours. And it will forever be finite and God's will forever be infinite. And so God demonstrates in this passage at the, at the most obvious level that he is sovereign over all things. But why is it revealed here? On the heels of Moses lying to his father-in-law, it seems to me it's for this. Because Pharaoh would have said, as his predecessors did, as his religion did, Pharaoh would have said, it is my heart, my supple, virile sovereign heart that directs all of history i'm the reason these israelites are in bondage to me i am god i am the god ra or horus and my heart will as long as it beats will govern history and then someday when it is mummified when it is finally hardened that's fine because the next god who succeeds me will be my son and his heart will do the same God is saying to Pharaoh and saying to Moses, your heart does not determine history. Pharaoh, your heart does not determine history. In fact, I am starting to mummify it now. As long as you continue to recoil, as long as you continue to rebuff me, I am going to harden your heart because I am the sovereign God over the heart. And Moses is saying, and by inference, as by implication as well, praise the Lord, I'm not sovereign over my own heart. Because God had to sovereignly overrule my heart, my heart by which I was going to manipulate, my heart by which I thought I had to to earn my escape out of Egypt, God is sovereign. Sovereign over the heart. And then we get to this very strange part of the story where where Moses is making his way on to Egypt. He suddenly become inspired to go to Egypt. What could explain that? Well, look at verse 23. The last thing he hears God say is, I want you to go into Egypt. I want you to tell Pharaoh, let my son go, that is Israel. I want you to let him go. And if you don't, I'm going to kill your firstborn son. Well, that promise that God is going to kill Pharaoh's firstborn son gives a little kick to Moses' step. Moses seems all too eager to show up in Egypt and watch Pharaoh's firstborn son die. Then the very next thing we see is the angel of the Lord stopping in front of Zipporah, Moses' wife, holding Moses' son and threatening to kill him. What's going on with that? why these stories why are they why are they next to each other why does one follow from the other it seems to me because god is exposing moses presumption on god's grace moses was all too eager to see pharaoh's son killed but he had no conception that his son could ever be killed because his son deserved yeah. to live because moses deserved the grace that he had received from God. How quickly Moses had forgotten how gracious God had been to him thus far. God had had told Moses, I want you to go, and Moses refused. Moses made up excuses. Moses uh, blamed God for not making him articulate and finally says, you go find somebody else. Moses was so confident in his own righteousness, so self righteous, self absorbed, that he was willing to let his people remain in slavery. Send somebody else to get them. I don't want to go back there. Then, but, oh, you say I could see Pharaoh's son killed. Well, now that's something I can pay attention to. I would love to see that. Wait a minute, Moses. Your son deserves to die too. You deserve to die. No one is righteous. No, not one. Now, some things have to be explained about the, the, the these um, the translation of verses twenty four to twenty six, because it's not exactly as it appears in the in Hebrew. It's it's very it's 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 very sparse, and so and so people have felt the burden to fill in some gaps. But here's the way I think it actually occurred. It's it's that the angel stopped Zipporah. Zipporah's holding the baby, holding Gershom. And the angel stopped Zipporah and, and said, I'm going to kill your son, not Moses, I'm going to kill the son. And Zipporah immediately knows what was not done by the leadership of her husband. Her husband had forgotten. Her husband had neglected the covenant that had been given to them through Abraham that this son should be marked by this sign of blood of circumcision to say no one will be saved without the shedding of blood. No child will be automatically saved just by being born to you but by looking ahead to the Savior who will shed his blood. And Moses, because he's so consumed with getting Pharaoh's son, and because he was uh, confident in his own righteousness, ignores this very basic essential thing in Israelite practice. So Zipporah immediately circumcises. And it's not clear that she throws the foreskin at Moses' feet. It's not necessary. It's rather, it seems that she took the blood and, and smeared it across his midsection, and then said this, not to Moses, but over the baby, you are a bridegroom of blood to me. That's a saying that was not just given to husbands, it was a saying extended to any member of the covenant family. We are related maybe not by not genetically by blood, but we are related by the blood of the covenant. The angel says no one can live without being covered by the blood of the righteous lamb that is to come. Zipporah takes that act. She says, right, he and I are related not because merely because of our genetics. He, he is not going to be saved merely by being my child or certainly not by being Moses' child. He is only going to be saved as he's covered by the blood of the lamb. Remember who's writing this. It's Moses. Moses is telling us, look, here is how proud I had become. That I presumed on God's grace. And God in his mercy stood in my path and stopped me and reminded me that if I, if I trust in my own righteousness, I will die. If I train my children to trust in their righteousness or to trust just by being related to me, they will die. And God, in His preservation, His preserving grace, stood in the way, pushed me to the coming blood of the Lamb, and then pushed me forward in faithfulness so that I would fulfill His commandment to go into Israel and let the people go. And because the people were let go, because the people were preserved, the line was preserved through which Christ has come. Moses is telling us, don't imitate me. Don't imitate my presumption on God's grace, but rather look for that one who is to come, that last Lamb." will die for the sins of the world. And as you look to Him, it should change the way you look at everyone else. You'll never again think, oh, that person, were only as smart as I am to believe on Jesus. You'll never look at another person to say, well, I was forgiven of my sins because they weren't as great as that person. And the way they sinned against me, not only will I never forgive them, but God could never forgive them. Or I deserve to be thought of favorably by God because of the good things I do in the community or that I go to church or the color of my skin or my socioeconomic level or the or or the way I treat my family. I deserve it. Oh, I need a supplemental policy of God's grace because sometimes I slip up. But God is really happy to have me on his team. Instead, Moses, it seems to me, is saying, Look, I deserved to die. My son deserved to die. Because my sins ultimately killed God's son. And if God could forgive me through his son, then how could I not go into Egypt? Not merely telling Pharaoh to let my people go, but giving him ten chances to repent. And then have the confidence as the other biblical writers will have, that God would save even Egyptians and include them in His covenant family. Have you looked afresh at the cross for yourself? The pastor does. The pastor has to daily. I read years ago a story about three young men who were traveling in Europe. <clears throat> And uh, they went into a church where there was a confessional booth and they issued each other a dare that they would go into the confessional booth and they would confess, wasn't true, but they'd confess a very immoral act that they had committed the day before and whatever the priest prescribed as penance, then they would do that. But two of the young men couldn't do it. One did. He came out and he said, I did it. Now pay up, pay up on the bet. And they said, oh no, not until you do the penance that was prescribed for you. So he walked to the front of the church and he started to carry out the penance that had been prescribed. He looked at the crucifix. A vivid display of Jesus with his five bleeding wounds and blood dripping down his brow from the crown of thorns hole in his side from the spear and he started on the penance the priest had told him to say three times dear Jesus you suffered and bled and died for me and I don't care He couldn't even repeat those words one time. As the legend goes, maybe it's just that, he instead returned to England, eventually becoming the Bishop of York. Dear Jesus, you suffered and bled and died for me, and I don't care. No one would ever be foolish enough to say that with his or her lips. But we act that way. Whenever we think, I deserve it, they don't. Whenever we sin for that matter, you suffered and bled and died for me, I don't care. It's not true of you if Jesus really is your Savior. And so I call you back. Look at that cross again. Look at the death you deserved and look I deserved. Jesus has saved us. And then think about those around you who need to know of that same forgiveness. Maybe by your forgiving them. And you can tell a story the way Moses has told us his. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for continuing to pursue us as the great shepherd. Our Father, we thank you for your patience with us, even when we are presumptuous and even when we forget and and act as if we deserve your grace, or even when we When we reject your grace by thinking that because of our behavior, we can never be your child again, and so we refuse to believe the gospel is still good news for us. Help us, Lord, as you retell it to us, as you retell the gospel to us, help us, Lord, to retell it to those around us, some perhaps, even by specifically saying you are forgiven. We pray it in the strong name of Christ and for His sake and God's people said together, Amen.